Hi, I'm Jason. I'm John. And I'm Marquis. And this is Just Just Getting Getting By. A free talk forum about the creative process and the wounds that hold us back from achieving our goals. Each week, building a roadmap through dialogue with working and struggling artists about how to better manifest a successful show business career. Hey, it's Jason. This week we spoke with Heather Pasternak. Heather studied at Stella Adler, and I had the pleasure of becoming her dear friend a decade ago when she transferred to the Experimental Theater Wing. She's the first interview we've done with a comedian. Have you ever wondered how does one become a comedian? I have, so I asked her. Heather takes us through her process of isolating this passion and pursuing it with unrelenting gusto. She explores what it was like to find her voice after questioning whether her privilege allowed her to even have one. We chatted about coping mechanisms, hecklers, our love for cats, and her new engagement. She gave us shit wearing a smile the whole time. I absolutely love this lady and look forward to seeing her career evolve and expand. This is our interview with the witty and hysterical Heather Pasternak. Um... Here we are, diving in. Mm-hmm. So your podcast is called... Just Getting By. And so it's like, I kind of like, I'm so honored to be here, but I'm also like, should I be offended that you asked me? <laughs> like, I wish I was so famous that I wouldn't qualify for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was more than just getting by, I guess. But I guess that's all of us, right? Yeah, it's at any level because... Um, the the degree of what that means changes. You know, we were talking to people that have had TV shows and then it disappeared after right. the pilot. Or it was on Netflix and it, they had a billboard yeah. in Times Square, but then it kind of like flopped and didn't get totally. picked up. So like, they're back at the drawing board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, just because you were in, had that spotlight on you doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that you're um, flourishing at every okay, given moment. So you ask you are just, to do it. Yeah. You're just, <laughs> yeah, no, we're asking everyone at every level because I think in this industry, the hustle never stops. Yeah. Right. I think that is true. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's also just scary to think that even at your most successful, that means you still have no financial security. Yeah, no we're not going to ask Jennifer Aniston to do this podcast. Because she's not successful enough. No, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> um, yeah, She's but like, pie. do you think she wants to be doing smart water ads? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Or is she just getting by? Oh, oh, my God, you've, you have you have literally just taken my, my point and, and heightened mm-hmm. it. You know, you, you learned me back. No, that's cool. Exactly. I mean, or their Vegas residencies for whoever, J-Lo or whatever. It's like everyone is just looking for the yeah. next best gig that they can be comfortable but also hustle because they still totally. need the money. Yeah, my mom them. was actually had me second-guessing the name of the podcast. She was all like, don't you think that's a little limiting? Like, like don't you think that that's actually uh, putting a negative spin on it? But like, that's the thing. I feel like a lot of the people that I know that are even the most successful people around me they are still just getting by it's like you're still doing whatever you have to do to keep your brand flourishing or to keep your your celebrity or your fame current even and that's a form of just getting by it's not just like 
you achieve success and then it's like, okay, I'm no longer getting by. Don't we you all know? think there's going to be like some moment when you're done? When no, you're yeah, like, it's like it. you're never done. There's humility throughout. Yeah. I remember when Ideally. I first booked um, The Colbert Show, which was like my first late night stand-up appearance and I was so excited. I kind of felt like I had this moment where I was like, oh, I can die now. Like, <laughs> if I die, it'll be okay. It was just, like, very mm. legitimizing. Because when you do stand-up, your whole family is like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh-huh. um, even the most supportive of comments have this underbelly of, like, are you sure this is what you want to do? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just so funny how quickly that fades away. And you're like, what's the next thing, man? What's mm. the next thing? I-, I also really found that, like, we all struggle with comparing ourselves to each other. And... It's kind of funny. I've actually tried writing jokes about this because I think, like, we all say, don't compare yourself because it'll just make you feel bad. But there's also a truth that, like, if you compare yourself to someone who's not doing as well as you, it kind of makes you feel better. (laughs) But we never do that, (laughs) you know. But I found myself comparing myself to myself. Like, when the, like, April rolled around this year, I was like, oh, man, last year I was shooting Colbert. And, like, what am I doing this year? And it's, like, Mm. it's hard to come down off of those highs, you know. Mm -hmm. When you're feeling the high, you never think, like, I better taper this happiness because I'm going to have to come down. You it know, ain't possible, right? Yeah, you just want to like feel all the happiness for as long as possible. <laughs> so you, so we started at your pinnacle. Um, when did you decide comedy was the right avenue? Because you were you were a trained so actually, actor. Yeah, that's true. I studied theater at NYU, and I'm from Los Angeles, so I'd been doing like Pampers commercials, like just mm-hmm. in the commercial actually, world since I was a baby. Did you do a Pampers? Commercial? I didn't do a Pampers ad, but I was like a toddler in um, a Hartford insurance ad mm-hmm. um, adorable do you guys remember that song we built this city like it was like in the commercial and they had like all these kids running across this like finish line We're it kids. was so 80s <laughs> um that was my first taste of it yeah and I, so i'd been kind of in the game for a while and my mom had always actually told me i was a comedian but i like fancied myself a more dramatic actress because that just seemed glamorous and i remember at nyu i like didn't really even know i was a comedian I just was like why am I so bad at Shakespeare <laughs> and they don't really have like there's no stand-up comedy theater like or studio there I ended no. up transferring to the experimental wing um probably just because like my college sweetheart transferred over there and I was like this seems cool <laughs> um but also so I glad was, you did That's yeah we met. I know and I was actually feeling like I didn't quite fit in in Stella Adler like because it was so dramatic and like I'm glad I learned those chops but they weren't really patting me on the back for my comedy work that much you know mm-hmm. um so then I moved back to Los Angeles uh after I like was living in Bushwick with my boyfriend Around and like working three us. jobs yes oh, we, we, were, we were going to Roberta's yes. and for dinner um so I ran out of money I was like working three jobs and then I went like crawling home with my tail tucked between my legs moved back in with my parents and I actually started studying real estate which is my family business Mm -hmm. because I was kind of afraid to like put everything into my plan a um I I went straight to plan b um Mm. (laughs) but then I started uh booking commercials and I was like excited and I ended up studying all the courses to take my broker's exam and then never took my broker's exam um and then I was trying to get an agent And I was meeting with managers and they were telling me, like, take UCB classes and take Groundling classes. Um, And I couldn't really get an agent. I felt like I was just another American girl in America, um, even with my theater background and all this stuff. And then my friend, Milana Weintrub, um, suggested that I take this stand-up class with Jerry Katzman. And 
it like changed my life. I mean, it turned me into a writer and I didn't realize that it would do that. I just took to it immediately. I met my writing partner, Kaylee Stolick through that, who also went to NYU. Um, and we did like, ended up doing, doing a feature film rewrite. And now I write pilots and it's almost like now I'm spoiled when I go to audition for something where someone else wrote it. It's a lot harder because it's not like <laughs> my words or my feelings mm-hmm. or what I care about talking about. Uh, but I'm still just trying to sell out. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a writing agent? I do. Um, I, I'm repped across the board pretty much at APA right now. Uh, but I, I'm still at Gersh with personal appearance. And then I have a different commercial agent. So All the agents. Yeah. Nice. I got a team. I can't believe it. I'm like, you guys, every time I see them or they come to a show, there's that little part of you that's like, is this an audition? <laughs> I'm like, oh, wait, they already, they already like me. They already like me. You know? <laughs> Um, so that is a thing about live performance, you know, even when I was prepping for Colbert, the booker would come out and she'd come to shows and was tweaking my material for the show with me. And every time I had to remind myself I wasn't auditioning again, it was like very scary. What was the process once you got into the comedy classes to get you actually uh, booking gigs? Well, the cool thing about this particular stand-up class and a lot of the classes is at the end they do a showcase and they film it. So what you really need is that first stand-up tape because that's what you have to send to bookers so they can see that you can do something. And you leave the class with like a solid five minutes. So even if I wanted to try some new jokes, I at least have two old jokes that I know work that I can put this new joke in the middle and I've learned something about joke writing structure. So it sort of felt like the things that you learn in like 10 years of open mics kind of in 10 weeks and also open mics can be really brutal it's a Mm -hmm. lot of comedians that like don't want to laugh at each other or they're just writing their own jokes or then you you know there are comedians who get really good at open mics but they're all doing material that makes comics laugh about like being broke and like things that then the tourists come to town and they're like this doesn't apply to us (laughs) um so I was glad that I didn't have to do the open mic world and it's also a lot of misogyny and a lot of like because the problem is before you learn how to write stand-up it's a lot of just like reading your diary on stage Mm -hmm. so it's a lot of like just dudes getting together and talking about how like pussy smell or like you know (laughs) and you're just like do I really need to be here right now (laughs) um so I finally got the tape and then I was able to reach out to bookers which is still a big part of the process and it's hard to like put your ego away but um I feel like I still reach out to people it's not like you know you think people are going to be like begging you to do their show and it's more like hey I'd love to do some time if you ever have a spot available like I try to make time every week to send those messages and I book my own show which helps because people will book me in hopes that they can get on my show and I've learned from booking my show that the people who reach out are really the ones that are fresh in your mind when it comes time to book that show right so yeah it never ends. Lots of networking. Do you yeah. have a specific brand of comedy? Well, I usually... So I just got engaged. Yes. Congrats. Which, thank you. Congrats. It's crazy. Can't wait to meet him. I know. We will after this. Um, if he stole my fiance. Um, <laughs> no, I used to do a bunch of material about trying to like trap a man into marriage and being very baby hungry. Yeah. So I think that will slightly shift. But in general... Um, and I've been writing about my family and like mental illness and other big issues. And I have sort of feminist undertones and things. So I think that... At the core of my stand-up, it's mostly about relationships. It's mostly about people. Like, I'm just a person who um, my therapist would call me a harmonizer, according Mm. to a certain scale, where, like, people are just very important to me. I kind of feel like people are everything. And I like telling jokes about our connections with each other because I feel like we're all struggling to make those better 
and deeper and like we're all pissing each other off in the process. Yeah. <laughs> Has your work gotten in the way of any relationships you've had over the years? It has, but in a good way where it sort of helped me, like, because when you're a performer, you really need someone who's okay with you being in the limelight, and it's very quick to learn who's not okay. There was a time when I was dating, and I wouldn't want to tell someone I was a stand-up comedian um, at first, and then I went totally opposite and was like, I'm going to lead with it and scare them away right (laughs) away, (laughs) you know, Um, but my fiancé is really, like, lets me say really personal things about him on stage and that is like become the most important thing to me in a partner because I just want someone who feels secure enough that I can make fun and when I'm making fun it comes from a loving place you know and I think that I'm making fun of stuff that you feel is just your problem and then it's like people will come up to you after a show and be like oh my god that happened to me or you know you always run it by him first if it's something really personal, yeah, I'm like, yeah. is it cool if Good I talk protocol. about this? Um, because, you know, when I was first starting out, I remember I had a boyfriend who didn't want me to talk about something. And I was like, well, it's my art. Fuck you then. Like, <laughs> I was like, And then I realized, like, wait, jokes are not more important than, like, the people in your lives. And the truth is, if he ever didn't like something, I could just make it a story about my ex-boyfriend. It's actually not that hard, like... You know, we exaggerate things in stand-up and we change some of the details for the funnier word or that gets our point across better and you're still dealing with the truth of it, you know? Right. Like, they're not coming to learn a secret about my boyfriend. They're coming to learn something universal, which I feel like you still give them even if you change some of those personal details. Yeah. I'm writing a book right now. Yeah, what's your book about? It's about my addiction. Oh. When, I, I was, when I was like a, a um, not-so-drug dealer and went uh, into a... Um, psychosis that ultimately ended up saving my life and uh, about those I hurt and uh, about the uh, um, crazy meth world of San Francisco and the subculture. Lots, lots of meth. But when I knew you, you were just like a pothead, right? Yeah, I was a pothead, maybe like a little bit of a cokehead on the weekends. Okay. Maybe a couple more days in the weekends. Okay. Um, then, it, like, I cut that out, got into Adderall uh-huh. for work, you know, for work. Of course, um, as we all do. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, then it became, like, a for, to breathe. For work being yeah. your work as a drug dealer. No, it wasn't that. I wasn't a drug dealer then, but, okay. but I, was, I was producing. And then, um, yeah, like, one thing led to another. I'm not going to kill the whole story of the book, mm-hmm. but I've been writing this book about those experiences. Um, and my... Uh, I wake up in the morning and I have to have a couple cups of tea and I have to know that there's nothing on the calendar and I have to sit for like four to eight hours to get any solid work done. That wasn't the wow, same when I was writing really when I was writing scripts. When I was uh-huh. writing scripts, I could write a couple scenes and then I have a dinner, I, you know, right. or a lunch. I can run to that lunch. I'm curious about when you're writing comedy. Mm. How how do you get into that zone? Does it come to? Are you at a uh, like a brunch and you're like hold up, like I need to go I into do, the bathroom yeah. and like what what is your process? Well, I'll take notes if something strikes me, like because great stand up is taking those moments when you're funny with your friends and you're most comfortable and translating that to the stage. So sometimes I'll say something that makes my friends laugh and I'm like, hmm, I better write this down, but I won't work on it right then. Um, and then a big process is I listen to all my sets, which in the beginning really made me want to die. Um, <laughs> I used to only listen to it on the treadmill because I could literally run from myself. <laughs> and I'd get really good workouts. Like the worse the set was, the better the workout. Yeah. <laughs> um, nice so yeah, so I would listen, but usually I'll take some time, like an hour, and I'll sit down and I'll listen to my sets and then I'll make notes about whatever I improvise that I like that I want to keep. Mm. And then I've implemented a system that Joan Rivers used to do 
too, and there's probably like a higher tech version of this, but um, I like the tangibility of it, which is flashcards. Because when you have jokes, it's really hard to feel like you have something tangible because like five years from now, you don't feel like telling the same jokes. But you actually do have something tangible that you could change and change the framing of it or use that same truth, the premise that it's based on and change the joke. So I started trying to catalog it, but the truth is it never feels like I can keep up with all of my voice memos, all of my tapes and translating those to flashcards. So it's a a constant fluctuating, yeah. I would never say, like, I'm never all caught up, but I do try to stay caught up with, I try to listen to my, I try to make it so there's not more than like five sets that I have to listen to before I keep doing new sets, because otherwise it starts to get very daunting to listen to the sets. And then I take good notes, but the part that I fall behind on is like printing it out and putting it on a flashcard. And like, right now I'm trying to, I did my first gig that was an hour long, um, and it was like I subbed in for someone who dropped out because in Los Angeles it's really hard to get spots that are more than like seven minutes yeah Mm -hmm. Um, I open a lot for Jeff Garland and he's really amazing because he'll give me like a 20 minute set and he'll also right before I go up be like go fail (laughs) (laughs) go try some new stuff so that's really nice you know a lot of Mm. people feel like they have to do their best stuff when they have a longer set and anyway so I did my first hour and it felt like I was just filling that hour with every good joke I've ever written um, so now I'm working on trying to take the time to actually like weave it more like a one woman show where there's like an arc a story. and yeah, yeah. What the, and, and I think order matters a little more when you're talking about relationships cause you can only say ex-boyfriend so many times mm-hmm. before people are like, women only care about boyfriends. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about your relationship with Jeff Garland. Oh, yeah. Um, just cause I'm, I'm like a big Jeff Garland fanboy. Like oh about, God, I love I know. all you, of his I'm work. I've seen him a million the, um, of times at the Largo. Opening for him. Yeah, but I will come, come back, back another time. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, how did that relationship come to be? You guys go to baseball games together. We went like, once. You text a lot. Yeah, he's he's become a friend. It's actually a really funny story because when we first met, um, well, so what happened is my one of my best friends we met like auditioning for Barbie commercials together when we were like six is Milana Vintrube and she went on to be Lily, the AT and T girl, and she's on This Is Us, and she's done a bunch of other. Um, you know, stuff, a Paul Feig series, blah, blah, blah. She's like, whenever I have to make business decisions, I'm like, what would Milana do? You know, (laughs) Um, she's very inspiring. She's the one who told me to take Jerry's class. Anyway, she invited me to do a best friends show with her, which is a show that they had at Nerd Melt. And it's where they have two comedians who are best friends telling a story of their friendship. And she had tagged a photo of me on her Instagram, and then I guess Jeff Garland was a fan of hers from one of her many accomplishments. I don't know what which one. I don't know if he's an AT&T fan. Or <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but he saw me on her Instagram, and then he like went down the rabbit hole of my Instagram, which... I used to even do more of this, but I used to do funny videos yeah. um, that were really random and only funny to me, and I used to get so much joy. I still do, but out of the fact that Instagram was this place where I felt like I didn't have to be marketable, yeah, um, and I could just do a stupid video. So he liked that, and, and I got an email from him, and it said, hello from Jeff Garland, and I was like, I'm being punked. <laughs> I was like, there's no way. And he was like, do you want to come open for me at Flappers or at Largo with Wanda Sykes? Uh, hello. And you're like, hello? I know. And I was like, uh, I was felt like I was kind of just trying to call the bluff. So I was like, yeah, I'll see you and Wanda at Largo. You know? <laughs> um, and then I showed up and I was like, is this where I get murdered? Like, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I walked in and it was very movie-like. He was like, um, he was like I'm going to change your life. 
And then we laugh about that now. He's like, I can't believe I said that to you. <laughs> he's like, also, the ego on that he's guy. Like, also, you changed my life. Like, and it's pretty cute. But he did change my life. I mean, he took me to Chicago and London to open for him. And he's given me a lot of stage time, which, you know, as stand-ups, it's like you need that. You feel out of work when you just haven't done stand-up for like three days sometimes. So a lot of getting getting better is someone being willing to give you that space and that time to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, like, helped me through my breakup. And for a while, he was hiring me to transcribe, like, his recording, his voice recordings mm-hmm. when I needed work to um, written stuff, which I hope he actually used and wasn't just doing to be nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so we'll hang out occasionally. Um, it is, it's nice to have a mentor. I do sometimes wish that there were more older women I knew in the business. Yeah. Um, but I understand why a lot of them stop doing stand-up once they get a TV show. And yeah. thanks to people like Jeff, there will be. <laughs> <laughs> How was that first moment of being in a show with the two of them? Well, opening? I was definitely nervous. It was not my most comfortable set. Um, I had a couple <laughs> friends come out and support me, and I definitely feel like it was stiffer. Like now knowing Jeff and knowing how much improv he does, I would have maybe done it differently, but that's life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the Largo is such an amazing venue. It's I my mean, favorite place. Right, so and obviously he liked it because he kept booking you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he he seemed to be... That's the nice thing about Jeff that I feel like he understands and that comedians understand is you can't really judge someone off one set. Mm-hmm. Like any, even the best comedian can have a bad set. It's it's an interesting thing, actually. Jerry Katzman, my comedy teacher, talks about this, and I always find it so encouraging how, like, when basketball players, like, miss a shot, we're just like, oh, they had a bad shot. But, like, we kind of don't give that same leeway to stand-up comedians. If a stand-up comedian bombs, you're like, they're not funny. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, maybe they're, maybe, like, you know, it's, just, it's a muscle, too. Right. Sometimes you have a muscle spasm or a growth pain, you know. Have you been heckled? Yeah, I have been heckled. Do you have any good heckle stories? I love a good heckle um, story. I, I don't know that I have anything, like, too... Um, Did I you think, heckle them back ever? Yeah, so I think yeah. the interesting thing about hecklers is, like, whenever I've gone really hard at a heckler... There was actually one show recently in Highland Park where this guy was so drunk and he was sitting in the front and he was commenting on every single comedian's set. Like, every comedian hated him. And I was, like, third to last... I was like, man, they're not kicking this guy out because he's drinking beers. And I was like, I want to walk him. Like, I don't care if my set suffers. I just want to get him out. Mm -hmm. So, like, as a service to the people going after me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I felt like I went really hard on him. Like, I made some feminist joke. And then he, like, commented. And I was like, oh, is it hard for you being a woman? And I was just, like, (laughs) really getting in his face. And I was, like, straight up just like, you should leave. Like, maybe you should go. (laughs) And he never left. Um, I had kind of a rough set, but also I just spent the whole night being like, was I too mean to him? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that it doesn't really pay off to be too mean to someone because I think the audience is more sensitive than we realize. Like, you forget what it's like to say something out loud in a theater for the first time and the fear you feel when you're not a performer and eyes are on you. Like, I had a show and this woman's phone went off. And I said something, I was actually opening for Jeff at Flappers, and she said something like, it was on silent. And I was like, it doesn't sound like it's on silent. And, you know, that got a big laugh. (laughs) And then I went on, and I was doing some improvising, and I was talking about how she sounds like the kind of person who needs a fax. Like, that just sounds like the speed she's at. (laughs) And then I felt like later, like, ooh, maybe that was kind of dickish. And she, like, came up to me after the show and was like... 
I'm so sorry, my phone went off. And I was like, oh, I don't give a shit. Like, that was my favorite part of the show, getting to, like, <laughs> just riff, you know? Um, but it was kind of illuminating and just reminding you that things seem bigger to different people. Like, to a comedian, it's like, we get drunk people saying shit all the time. My favorite thing is a positive heckler, Ooh. because you can't be mean to them, really. Yeah. It's like, they're drunk, and they're just being supportive. Like, you'll have the kind of heckler who it's like, you're in the middle of a joke, and they're like, you tell them! <laughs> you know? And you're like, what do I do? with this. What um, am I telling them? Just did. Yeah, but we all have these savers in our pockets. Like, I'll do things. I think a lot of, this is probably a common one, but comedians will say stuff like, Mom? Is that you? You know, or like <laughs> making it someone that you know is always funny. Um, it's a balance. Because you want to talk to them enough to shut them up and like be able to roll with the punches, but not so much that they like take over the whole show. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I feel like I feel like whenever I have that thought, oh, I want to do good, I want to be funny, I never have a good show. But then if before the show I think, I want to make these people's day better or whatever, like when I go in with a more generous intention, I always have a better show. And I feel like you can, the hecklers are still people that you want to bring joy to. So you don't want to like shit on anyone too much. <laughs> I'd say worse than hecklers is when I talk about being really baby hungry and then guys come up to me after the show and they're no. like, I'll give you a baby. And they're like, <gasps> I'll give you a phone call to the police. I know. <laughs> I think it's like so original. <laughs> and I'm like, it's like, uh... I think the saddest thing is that I just smile and I'm like, haha, because that feels easier than like changing their ideas about women in the world yeah. <laughs> you know and it's like but then I have mixed feelings about that too like should I have like a should I have like a pamphlet that I hand out that's like do you stay <laughs> you just have it in your back pocket yeah. here you go yeah <laughs> do you stay like totally sober for sets do you have ever have a drink like have you ever I will have, ha- one have you ever drink. Have you ever, like, done a set? Well, sometimes there are, like, 420 shows where you'll get stoned for a show. Okay. Um, And there have been periods in my life where I was smoking enough weed that it doesn't affect me. Yeah. But being stoned doesn't make me funnier. The real reason I don't do a lot of drugs or drinks before a show is that if it goes well, I don't trust that I can recreate it. Uh, so it doesn't really end up serving me. I'll have one drink because usually that's like one of the perks that the club gives you a free drink. Yeah. And like one drink loosens me up and I still feel like myself. Yeah. And then I'll have a second drink after or like, and also doing stand up is honestly like, I don't know. I don't think I'm an addict, but it's kind of a good excuse to stay sober. Yeah. Like I'm like, oh, it's good. I'll have like three days this week where I'm not going to get stoned at 2 p.m. because I have a 6 p.m. show or something Mm -hmm. and I don't want to be like tired Mm-hmm. Not naming names. Do you know comedians that do get fucked up before their sets? Um, Have well, you seen that? There are there? certain comedians who I feel like they're weed comedians in a way. Like uh-huh. I was actually on uh, that Netflix show, Cooking on High. Yeah. And so some of my like followers come from that, or or like I get asked to do four twenty shows. I mean, there's definitely there's that comedian who was on High Maintenance who mm-hmm. has a show in LA called Shit Show. That's all like they get weed products. I mean, the whole show is based on. I don't think there are any comedians who are like the snoop dog of the com, com- i mean maybe yeah. they are um but i don't think it's like no one's hiding it you know yeah, what yeah, i mean yeah. but it's probably like any other industry where there are drug addicts that we're not aware of yep. you know I hear that i feel like stoned audiences this actually doesn't make it funnier because i feel like their attention spans are shorter <laughs> like whenever i do a 420 show the funniest part is always when a comedian is like in the middle of an elaborate joke and they're like I forgot the rest of my joke. And it's like, it's funny, but like kind of only the first time. <laughs> yeah. So you're, what are you working on right now? 
oh, what aren't I working on right now? Um, I'm pitching a pilot I wrote based on my stand-up. I'm auditioning for all the things. Um, I'm getting in credit card debt. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is kind of the my MO. I get into a bunch of credit card debt, and then I, like, book a commercial and pay it all off. But it's so it's much cuter cycle. in your 20s. <laughs> I'm just, like, every time I'm like, oh, shit, I'm here again? What? How did this happen? Um, and I'm also starting to, tr- I'm trying to break into the college festival circuit, which can be a real way to make money in stand up. Mm-hmm. There's a festival called NACA. Um, I've tried to apply before and I felt like my material was so marriage and baby heavy that it almost wasn't relatable for college kids. So I'm hoping I submitted a tape recently that's not as marriage baby heavy, but still true to me. So I'm hoping that gets in. And then there's um, the festival Just for Laughs in Montreal. Mm-hmm. New Faces Festival is big in stand-up comedy. So I auditioned and had a callback for like the sixth or fifth time. Maybe it's my year, guys. <laughs> uh, I'm also trying to do more late night. People are like, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you need? <laughs> <laughs> How do you get to the point where um, you have the HBO special? How, how did Michelle Wolf get like what I know she was she because she was doing similar things to what you're doing yeah and then, I would love to know we should ask Michelle but I think it's probably <laughs> like anything in the entertainment industry where there's a different way for everybody but it's yeah. momentum it's like doing those late night spots doing those festivals and trying to run with that you know I mean I've had generals with Comedy Central and they're starting to do they're doing specials everywhere's doing specials now which is nice Netflix um, people will sometimes get impatient and just put their own albums out. Yeah. Um, I would love to do like a 15 minute Netflix thing or something. You yeah. Know? Um, so I think really it is those gatekeepers. It's your agents and managers pitching you to them and getting also getting a good tape. It's so hard. But like in Los Angeles, people audiences are so much tougher. Like I've even just gone down to San Diego to open for Jeff Garland and it's so nice. I'm like, oh my God, these people want to laugh. What? <laughs> and then you want to get a tape of a set that you're not just trying new shit. It's a set of this is a bunch of stuff I like. So a lot of it is just the stars aligning that you're prepared to get the right tape and the audience is in a good mood and you're hot and the audience is and you get, you know, because you do kind of need that. It's essentially the proof of concept for a 15-minute special. Or you get those actual people out to shows. Yeah. Do you have any habits that you're still trying to break um, that, that, that aren't good for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, I have a sugar habit. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had to go on an elimination diet because I was getting rosacea and I've gotten that under control. But I end up gorging myself on like dried fruits and stuff mm. because I just... I also, I, I struggle with anxiety a lot um, and uh, harping on things. So it's like n- more like negative thinking habits or mm-hmm. woulda, shoulda, coulda habits. I do a lot of like people pleasing and trying to anticipate what other people's reactions to things will be. Um, trying to think of what else. I, I do feel like smoking weed is something where I fluctuate with it. And sometimes I have to try to like rein it in because when I smoke too much weed, I wake up excited to smoke weed instead of like excited to do the things I'm going to do that (laughs) day Mm -hmm. so I have to kind of try to keep that in check um what else being critical on myself or like hard on the people closest to me feels like a bad habit it's really hard to appreciate and feel gratitude for your accomplishments like even now it's like I'll run into people and they're like oh my god you're crushing it you're opening for Jeff Garland you just got engaged and I'm like oh yeah those things are true but it's hard to not just focus on like 
you know, I'm just stressed about my credit card debt or <laughs> right. what's next. Um, so, yeah, I guess I would love to be more zen, I guess. What do you do to keep to stay centered? Do you have any practices? Um, well, I actually, I got this book that I really love called 101 Essays That'll Change the Way You Think. And whenever I get stuck working, well, that's the other thing. It's like, I feel like being self-employed and being creative, it's really just, sometimes the hardest thing is just getting yourself to sit down and want to do it. Um, a lot of the things that help me are like, I have accepted the truth that environment matters. So like spending time bringing flowers home from my office or like neatening the office up for 15 minutes and like burning some sage or like putting on music, like setting a vibe for myself to want to work is something that used to feel like a waste of time and that I didn't, you know, give any attention to. And now I realize like I kind of have to get myself in the mood. Mm -hmm. Um, And like working out regularly helps with stress. Um, My therapist also suggested this thing that I've been really loving where you don't look at your phone first thing in the morning, you wait 30 minutes. Like I'd always heard about not being on your phone right before bed, but I never thought about first thing in the morning, just so you can kind of take a temperature with yourself before you get like outside stimuli. Mm. So that's been really nice. I try to go to the spa once in a while. I'm mm-hmm. a big fan of baths. I mean, the nice <laughs> thing about your 30s is just, um, like, I feel like in my 20s, I used to make up excuses for why I didn't want to go somewhere or mm-hmm. something. And I felt like mm-hmm. I had the pressure to, like, go to every party I was invited to. And in your 30s, you're like, like, people invite you to things and you just say no. No, I don't And you don't are. even, like, <laughs> you don't even give the fake reason of the thing you're doing. You're just like, no, I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, just allowing that. Mm. I try to get out of town once in a while too. I'm going to Joshua Tree tomorrow night for a night. Nice. Little things like that make you feel like you can reset. Are there any people in your life that help you reset? Mm. I feel like I'm fortunate. I have a lot of friends that are good for advice, but yeah, I definitely will call my friends when I'm feeling frustrated and I'm just like, I am on the struggle bus today. (laughs) And it's not that I want them to also be miserable, but there is something about commiserating with people who are like me fucking too. And you just feel less alone. And that like feels good, even though I want them to be not in that same place. I'm like, oh, you feel this too? Okay, I'm not crazy. Right. I think the relating to one another in that sense where it's like, oh, we're both kind of going through it right now lifts you out of that a bit because you know you're not going through it alone. Totally. Which is why it's important to stick with your friends, guys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I also think scheduling weirdly calms me down. Like if I'm feeling (laughs) overwhelmed in my life, if I write down all the things I have to do and I make time for them in the next like two weeks... Like, even just writing down that I'm going to go to the dry cleaners on, like, Saturday or something. Like, then I feel like I don't have to keep that thought in my head. Mm -hmm. Another hard thing with stand-up is I do comedy coaching to try to pay the bills. And I, like, there's a lot of jobs where I feel like, you know, you talk yourself into liking them. I I like comedy coaching because I feel like I get to help people be funnier or, like, do something joyful or get better at something. But there are times where I'm like, I'd rather just be working on my own jokes. Mm -hmm. Um But yeah, all that stuff is just part of it. It's like sometimes I end up having five shows in a row and then comedy coaching. And then I'm like, oh, I don't have a night off. And it's hard to then you dick around in the middle of the day on a Monday and you feel like a schmuck. So I feel like a lot of it is reminding myself like, but I work Saturday, Friday, you know, like Monday kind of is my Saturday and it's okay. So a lot of it just comes back to like being kind to yourself and not beating yourself up about stuff, I feel like. So now that you're engaged, 
Say it again. <laughs> um, I can quit, right? Like, who needs a career? I right? need a husband. <laughs> what does he do? He's a fucking actor. <laughs> We're fucked. It's like we both should have married doctors, but we fell in love. So it's like, what are you going to do? But that is actually nice to be with someone who doesn't do exactly what I do, but still, like, understands all of my bitching and moaning. Uh-huh. And he's really good. He helps me with my self-tapes if anyone ever needs one. Nice. All right. <laughs> go park. Yeah, no, it's nice. Um, where do you see your comedy going? Um, I see it where it's always going. I mean, I think I just want to reach people and I just want to be truthful. And the truth about getting engaged or any major milestone is it's not what you think. Like we super fumbled through our engagement. I blacked out pretty much. Like it wasn't like the magic movie television moment that you see. It was more like our first time doing something. And I remember he was like, why aren't you crying? And I was like, why aren't you on your knees? Like it was... (laughs) kind of cute he forgot to open the ring box like it was you know it's awkward it's like anything in life or um i remember when we tried to have sex after getting engaged it wasn't that great because there was all this pressure to have like the best most romantic sex of your life and then you can't perform and then you're like oh no is this like married sex now you know like (laughs) so i think that i'll just have a whole new set probably about that and i think the thing about relationships is when you're not in a relationship you think that when you have a relationship you actually have something. But when you're in a relationship, you remember that you're insecure every day and you have to work on it every day. And you're mm-hmm. like, am I still going to have this relationship tomorrow when I wake up? Only if I water it tonight, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't think I'll ever run out of things to bitch and moan about. I mean, I do feel like sometimes it feels easier to write about sad things or find the comedy and tragedy or it makes you more likable to watch because they're like, oh, I want to get on your side. But that's actually something I wanted to write a joke about is I have feel like I've had so many bad relationships, so many bad breakups that none of my friends were jealous of me. I feel like they were all just like, she's earned it. <laughs> <laughs> like, finally. So, yeah, I'm going to try and make it funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After Colbert, what was, um, what did you, did anything come of that? I mean, the Colbert credit has helped in that I can, when I'm traveling, most shows will put me up. Like, just getting booked on other comedy shows or performing in comedy clubs. Um, I'm hoping it'll help with the college circuit. I mean, it's basically just a credential. Mm-hmm. Is that the right word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. credential. Yeah. To It's like legitimizing book- somehow. Exactly. It's like you've done late night. It's also like when people intro me at shows now, they get to say, you've seen her on late night television. That's like the best part of the whole fucking <laughs> like, thing. Yes. That yes, is it. Because none of the truth is none of them have ever seen you on late night television, but it sounds great. Sure does. Right? They're like, we're supposed to laugh with this one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you have any sense of um, spirituality or um, belief in a higher power of any sort? I do. I um, I mean, I don't know if I just am thinking that because I want to think that. Oh, I get it. Um, but there are certain things in life that just feel meant to be or connections that feel like they've been, you know, lifetimes before to me. I also remember, like, when I think back to my earliest memories, I remember feeling very connected or contented. Like, I just think that I was somewhere before. Mm. Maybe that's egotistical. <laughs> um, Maybe not. I don't know. It is really interesting. Um, I guess I don't know how to answer that question, but I'm definitely not an atheist. I do think that there's a higher power, and I I hope to believe in karma. I mean, even if karma isn't real, I think we should live as if it is. I believe a lot in, like, um, if you treat people the way you hope they are, that they'll rise to the occasion. And I feel like I believe the best of people because it's nicer for my thoughts, even if it's not true. 
Um, and just those kind of like, I believe in the law of attraction. Um, and I love, I talk to my psychic like every six months and Ooh. she's into past lives. And I think that I've always been super baby hungry, but I feel like when you have a baby, you pretty much have to believe in God because they're just like so magical. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least magic. I mean, definitely believe in magic. <laughs> yeah. The entire conception is Right? I mean, magic, even the idea like, that I could make a baby. Like, part of the reason yeah, I want to have a baby weird? is just because I'm like, no way. Like, right. Isn't that, that weird? It's like, this yeah. is real. Like, this oh, I try this feature. <laughs> <laughs> so, whenever I'm around you, um, it's always been such a positive environment. Um, you know, oh, filled with laughter, so um, uh, lightheartedness, comedy. Even when you're not doing stand-up, it's uh-huh. just like there's always something That's funny. Sweet. What makes you angry? When do you have rage? Oh, um, I feel like I I struggle with feeling anger. Uh, sometimes you I struggle feel, yeah. with the ability to yes, feel anger. Yes, like I'm the mm-hmm. kind of person who smiles when I'm really upset. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I sometimes just jump quick to like resentment because I've like pushed something down. Yeah. Um, but I get angry when I feel unappreciated or attacked. Partly because I think I attack myself so much. I'm like, I don't need anyone else attacking me. Mm -hmm. Um, When are other times I get angry? I guess that I feel like I feel grief sometimes. I struggle with, you know, expectation turning into disappointment. And how do you be hopeful without having expectation? Um, And, oh, I'm really good at, like, I can get very angry for people I love. Like, the, the ways that I can't stand up for myself, I can really stand up for other people in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get really angry at the world. I mean, the abortion bans in Alabama were devastating. But I think that what's under anger is hurt, usually. And I don't know if it's healthy or unhealthy, but I often find myself skipping over the anger and going straight to the hurt. It's certainly more honest. Maybe. Mm. I just don't feel comfortable being angry. Maybe it's like a woman thing where women feel I struggle like... struggle with that. Yeah. You feel that too? Uh, yeah, I did in acting school um, as well. I, I never wanted to go to angry play. I grew up around um, mm. a bit of anger, you know, fits of rage and, you know, smashing phones. Mm. It was just like, like, ew. Why visit that yeah, again? Yeah, gross. Mm-hmm. I don't want to... So then when the work required it, it was like, why can't you go there? Why won't you allow yourself? It was just like, it's just so dirty. You yeah. Know? It's like... Um, but they're, they're, you know, it's just as healthy to um, be able to access it. Right. Though it, that is an interesting thing to be able to skip past it and be honest about what the real emotion is. Mean, I'm definitely better at being angry when I'm drunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Loosens it all. Does it all come out when you're drunk or? Um, I do, like, I think, I don't know if this is just a female thing, but, like, I feel like I struggle with keeping secret lists. <laughs> like, I don't want to be that person, but sometimes I feel like there are certain times and places where you want to bring up stuff, and then if you decide it's not that time and place, it goes in this, like, other place, and then if there never eventually is a time and place, sometimes you do get that build up. And um, it's like, you know what? Yeah. It's like, while we're at it, six months ago, Thursday at 4 p.m. (laughs) What's your sign? I'm a cancer. Okay. um, Scorpio rising, Aquarius moon. But who even cares? (laughs) That's the thing. It's like, we always want to know all of of the details, but then it's like, what is any of it? What are you guys? What are you guys? I'm a Virgo. I'm a Taurus. Scorpio. Oh, yeah. I want to say also that you've always been very warm to be around, and I. 
I remember you making always such big family meals. We're always coming over for dinner. Yeah, super domestic. Yeah, you're just like a mama bear. And, <laughs> and the cats. Who could forget about the cats? Yeah, we're both like crazy cat ladies, oh, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, super cat ladies. <laughs> Is Francois still around? What's going you on? You know, my uncle adopted Francis. Oh, he was a handsome That was friend. when I had to go to rehab the first time. <laughs> yeah. He took over Francis. I still have two cats. I have a dog moving in with me really? this summer. Yeah. Oh, man. It's okay. <laughs> Would you go back and tell um, Heather, who's graduating from NYU, any advice? Oh, yeah. What would you tell her? I would say um, whatever it is, like start before you're ready. I would say um, finish things, conquer your procrastination. I would say um, there are some people you don't have to have sex with. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think just also I feel like... um, I think that I grew up kind of privileged. You know, I was from Beverly Hills, and that always made me feel like I didn't have anything to say. Oh. Kind of. Yeah. And that was a big hurdle for me. But, yeah, just to to try to love myself more and to, you know, it's that thing of, like, you're significant and you're enough even if you were lucky or to grow up in a nice place. or You know what I mean? Like, yeah, fortunate. That yeah. it doesn't diminish your... The kind of person you can be or how valuable you can be to your community and that kind of stuff. I think we can end it there. Yeah, yeah. I think that's beautiful. incredible. Thank you yeah. for attending yeah. this sermon. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, thank you for having me. This was so fun. Yeah, yeah we're glad that you came.